We'll start with these three passages just kind of as our text uh, to launch out from. John 14, Acts chapter 1, and then Galatians 5. If your Bibles are open, I'll start in John 14. We'll pick it up in verse 15. And I want you to try try and let every word sink in. Uh, Because some of the things Jesus says, he starts with something that doesn't start necessarily with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, though he immediately goes into it. Notice what I mean in in verse 15. Verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You could stop right there, but he goes on. What's important about that statement setting up what he's about to say? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Isn't that great? The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Will be, at that point. This was not something that every believer was receiving, but they would. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now that, just like everything else that's repetitive in Scripture, I will come to you is not a singular event. The first time this will make sense to them is when Jesus comes to them right after the resurrection. Matter of fact, the very day he rose from the dead, he came to them and they were shocked because they thought they had lost the Messiah forever. And then these things start to make clear. Drop down to the 25th verse. 25th verse, Jesus says, These things I have spoken while... Actually, read 24 first. Uh, Verse 24 is important as well. It sets up the 26th and 27th verse. Jesus says this in verse 24. He who does not love me and does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, I give to you. We'll stop right there. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. So Jesus makes it clear, those who love him keep his commandments. They will receive the Helper, they will receive the Holy Spirit. He would be in them. Jesus didn't say when that would take place, but at this time he hasn't yet gone to the cross. But he says it's coming. The ministry of the Holy Spirit will not only be around you, but in you. And that will come after the resurrection. Now, Acts chapter 1, we see in verse 4, Acts chapter 1, verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we'll see when we get into our study, they had already received the Holy Spirit prior to this. They had already received the Holy Spirit, and we'll see that in the book of John. But they will soon be baptized with the Holy Spirit, even though they went from not having the indwelling of the Spirit to receiving the indwelling of the Spirit, and soon you would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, verse 5. Look at verse 8. Drop down to verse 8. Verse 8 is directly linked to verse 5. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then the last place, turn with me again uh, 
Galatians chapter 5, keeping in mind verse 8 of Acts 1, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon to be what? Witnesses. Witnesses. Galatians 5. I would shudder to think what kind of witness we would be without the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, starting with verse 22. Many of you are familiar with this passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. And a lot of people stop there, but look at the next two verses. But those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So not only would we have the fruit of the Spirit, but, but Paul's saying those that the fruit of the Spirit is flowing forth in their life have crucified the flesh, and they belong to Christ. If then we walk, live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we ask right now for your Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, the very Spirit that breathed life into man, Lord, that you would speak and you breathe life and truth and your presence and your power, your conviction, Lord, into this place. Lord, speak to every heart. Those that uh, know you as Lord and Savior, perhaps there's some here that have never been born again, that they need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for that first time to have a fresh new life in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would speak to those of us that uh, have walked with you for years, for there's still much to understand and the depth of the work of your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you'd use this short period of time, relatively speaking, Lord, to communicate such great and profound truths from your very throne room of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. There's no question, no question at all, that the Holy Spirit was given and is given to every and all believers. Uh, But there's also no question that the peace and the power and the overflow of the Spirit is given to the disciples of Christ. That makes sense. Saved is one thing, a disciple of Jesus. That's where the power and the overflow work and the, and the peace and all the things that Christ, the fullness of the Spirit, is given to the disciples of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 18 tells us to do this. It says, understand the will of the Lord. Did you know God wants us to understand His will? It's not a mystery. There's many mysteries, but not His will. Not the essential things of His will are clearly. It said, understand the will of the Lord, and it goes on to say, be filled with the Spirit. It's the will of God that every believer be literally filled up to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And yet this only happens when our lives are yielded in obedience and surrender to Christ. Anything less than that yields counterfeit fruit. Anything less, less, less than our full yielding to the Lord. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time together, The Work of the Holy Spirit, Part 2. I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's Part 1. This is not meant to be an exhaustive 12-week seminary course. This is meant to be a two-week prepping us for going into the book of Luke and also prepping us for how we can be praying for things like revival and seeing personal revival in our lives and really the work of the Spirit manifested in all of us individually. And I really believe that uh, you don't need to know everything to know a lot and receive a lot. And hopefully uh, today's message, building on what we looked at last week, was primarily the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and all the way up to the ministry of Jesus. And we're picking up 
today with the work of the Holy Spirit as Jesus will give it to every believer and then his ascension, the falling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and what is happening in the body of Christ since that time period. What's going on in the last 2,000 years? What is the Holy Spirit doing today? What has he done in the past? And will redo, I absolutely believe it, again. Uh, and is doing that again and again around the world. If you're taking notes again, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit part two, and we'll look at four things briefly this morning. With, in, upon, and ignited. With, in, upon, and ignited. These are four different experiences with the Holy Spirit. With, in, upon, and ignited. All of them are in the Scriptures more than a few times, many times for each of those different experiences with the Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit, but different experiences, and all four of them God wants for you and I to taste and experience and to live in our lives. Though, let's look first at with. Though most people are unaware, most people are unaware that the presence of the Holy Spirit is actually with the entire world. Does that make sense? I didn't say, I didn't say the acceptance of the Holy Spirit is with the entire world. I said that the presence of the Holy Spirit is with the entire world. No one can, rest- the Spirit is everywhere. Amen. The Spirit is all throughout the universe. Remember, we went all the way back to Genesis 1-1, the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. The Spirit has no limitation whatsoever. The Spirit is in every single corner of the universe, just as God the Father and God the Son are. So this, the Holy Spirit's presence is in the whole world. In other words, He is all around the world. And What is His primary emphasis? What is He doing? He's all around the world pointing men, women, children, to the living Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's all over the world pointing people to Christ, pointing the world to Christ. Just as John the Baptist did, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Remember, the ministry of John the Baptist was to point to Jesus, to point to Jesus, which is a a type or a shadow of the Holy Spirit. The whole ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.9 says, The true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Not some men, not a few men, gives light to who? Every man. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. No man, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, is without excuse, for the Spirit speaks through a number of things. The Spirit speaks through creation all around us. He speaks through the Word of God. He speaks through you and me as believers. He speaks through calamities. He speaks through trials, tribulations. He speaks through blessings. He speaks through failing health. Don't we know that one, right? Uh, Even dreams and supernatural means, the Holy Spirit speaks through all of these things and more. John chapter 3, verse 8, words of Jesus. Jesus said this, he said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Is Jesus correct? Of course. We kind of know how wind blows, but we don't really know where did it come from 10 seconds ago. The exact coordinates. Now God knows but those who are born of the Spirit are the same way. In other words, the Spirit of God is in this world and drawing people well before they even have a concept of the Holy Spirit. You were drawn by the Spirit before you had any concept of the Holy Spirit, if you're saved. 
before you had any real understanding, any theological background of it, the Holy Spirit was drawing you just like the wind just came. You had no idea that the Spirit was working on you, but of course He was. Persecution, communism, socialism, the media conglomerate, terrorism, radical Islam, school systems, college professors, corporate policies, none of these devices of man can stop, though they often try to keep the Holy Spirit from drawing men to Jesus Christ. None of those things, none of those can can stop the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, you can't grab it. There's nothing you can do. You can't write a law against the Holy Spirit. You can't outlaw it. You can't silence the Holy Spirit. Jesus, just like the wind, it's like trying to grasp the wind. The Holy Spirit will always be in the world convicting men, drawing men. John 16, verses 7 and 9, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come for one primary reason. To convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. But the apex of it all is because the world doesn't believe in me. They'll believe in Santa. They'll believe in a leader. They'll believe in a philosophy that we can trace back that's only 200 years, 400 years, 600 years, 7 years old. They'll believe in all those things. They'll believe in their 401k. They'll believe in their education. They'll believe in everything, but they won't believe in me. But the Holy Spirit will convince them they must believe in me. This is what the Holy Spirit came to do. Since the ascension of Jesus Christ, since Jesus went back to the Father, the Holy Spirit has been convicting mankind of the great gulf between us and God. That great gulf that exists between us and God. The sin that lies between us and, and if you're still unsaved or uh, before we were saved, our rejection of Jesus Christ. That's the gulf. Our sin and our stiff arm of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either we don't believe in him or say, I'll wait till later. Either way, the Holy Spirit will continue to work on every heart on planet Earth to say, you must come to the Savior. You must believe the Son of God. You must believe his testimony. You must believe in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, when he was on the earth, the Holy Spirit empowered him to do great things. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, many, many people saw this take place. People came from miles. And you know what the response with the the religious Pharisees were? We now need to kill him because everyone knows he's raised someone from the dead. Not to say, fall at their feet and say, this must be the Son of God. Who in the world can raise someone from the dead who's been dead for four days and starts to stink? And Jesus had come forth, and the whole world knew it. This was just, just days before he went to the cross. They were convinced more than ever, not that they must repent and follow him, but they must put him to death. And Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he would speak throughout time this same message, come to the Savior, come to the Savior. But when we turn from sin and the Messiah, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is with us in a whole new way. Remember, the Spirit is in the whole world. Unsaved people and saved people are receiving some measure of the Holy Spirit's ministry. The lost are receiving, come, come that you might have life, come. Come, the Spirit and the bride say, come. The Spirit is calling everyone. But once we've come to Christ, we have a new with experience with the Holy Spirit. Through salvation, once we're saved, through salvation, both individually and as the church, 
which is that singular body of Christ around the world, not just Calvary Chapel, Richmond, but all believers, the Spirit is with us then in relationship. Does that make sense? Right? You might be in line with someone at uh, Martin's, but you're not really with them. Now, you're right beside them. You can overhear their conversation, but you have no relationship with them, right? Sometimes you're happy about that. Other times you say, hey, this looks like a great person to hang out with. Now, when you come to know the Lord, you look at all people as great candidates to have a relationship with because God loves every single person. But again, when you're standing in line there, you're not really with them, but you're beside them. But once we come into salvation, we have a different standing with the Holy Spirit. He's now with us in relationship. He's not only calling us, and he always continues to call us, but additionally, he is now for us and walking with us. Does that make sense? He's now for us and walking with us. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said these words, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Amen. That was his final word there. That word, with means in the Greek meta, or behind. I am behind you. I got your back, is what Jesus said. I have your back until the end of the age. When people come against you, when people don't believe the message of the gospel, when your co-workers think you're a nutcase, right? All of those things, Jesus said, I've got your back. I'll, I'll be with you. I'll protect you. You'll feel as confident as a woman walking down the street with a German shepherd at her side. We've got one in our neighborhood that me and my wife walk by. Scares the living daylights out of both of us. Um, he's about 140 pounds. I think he's pure wolf. Um, but, uh, but I guarantee you, if you have him on a leash, you feel pretty confident. He'll tear into you like nobody's business. Now, the Holy Spirit's not like that. But what I am, what I am saying is the Holy Spirit is our, he, he's our protector, isn't he? He protects us. A lot better than a German shepherd can do. A lot better than a uh, sidearm can do. All of those things, the Holy Spirit protects us from anything, even the unknown realm that we can't see around us because we don't wrestle against just flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. The Holy Spirit has our back, has our future, has our present, understands our past. So again, we have this relationship, but we also have the protection of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16, 18. It gives you an idea of what the Holy Spirit does in ensuring our moving forward in life. He said, and on this rock I will build my church. That's you and I. We are the church of Christ. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the gates of hell are violent. Full, Satan has a lot of power. Don't be misunderstood. Has a lot of power. But zero power against the Holy Spirit. None. He's like he got a water pistol going after, uh, uh, you know, going after some volcano that's erupting. That's the Holy Spirit versus our enemy. But the true and faithful church, if we're the true and faithful church, we receive not only the prompting and the proclamation of the Spirit, that which led us to salvation, but we also receive that protection, the peace of the Spirit, the perseverance of the Spirit, and the patience of the Spirit to not sit down and give up but to continue forward in the faith. But for the believer, the Spirit is not just with us, walking beside us, in relationship with us, but He's also in us. 
John 1, uh, 1 John 4, 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's look at this in relationship. So the first is with, remember, again, these four experiences of the Holy Spirit. With, the whole world has some relative interaction with the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Spirit is drawing all men unto the Savior. But then when we come into salvation, we have a new with experience, and that is the Holy Spirit walking with us, being for us, but he's not just for us, as Jesus said, he's in us. And remember, when Jesus was walking with the disciples, Jesus was anointed by the Spirit. Remember, the dove came upon him, that Jesus was, Jesus was the manifestation of the Spirit walking with the disciples, and they had Jesus with them, but Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to be in you. I'm going to send the helper who will be in you. Let's look at this in relationship. Because of the blood of Jesus and salvation by faith through grace alone, the Spirit dwells in us, and we are in the body of Christ by and through the Spirit of Christ. The first, this began first, um, again, this in relationship with the Holy Spirit first began with the apostles immediately after the resurrection. In fact, the day, the evening of the resurrection is when it took place, uh, but it was before the ascension of Jesus, before he actually ascended back to the Father. The day he rose from the dead, that evening, he came to the disciples. They were, they were all locked up in a room and were petrified that they were going to be killed by the Roman soldiers, that they would never see their Messiah again. And Jesus came to them that very night, and we find in uh, John chapter 22, uh, John chapter 20, verse 22, if you're taking notes, John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So this first reception of the indwelling of the Spirit was given to the apostles first, but not, it would then go to the whole church, but given to the apostles first. It was well before Pentecost. It was before Jesus has ascended back into heaven, but it was after the resurrection. Matter of fact, the evening of the first day in the resurrection. So the possession of, and the indwelling of the Spirit became what? It became the evidence of salvation. The possession or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit became the evidence of salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Paul makes it clear. Every believer has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If they don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they're not a believer, they're not saved, their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit becomes the evidence of our salvation. The scriptures tell us that the works of the flesh are manifested in our lives, but so are the works of the Spirit. We saw that in Galatians chapter 5. Just like you can tell, Jesus said it this way, he said, you'll know them by their fruits. If you see somebody who beats their spouse, who cusses a blue streak, and you can be pretty certain that the Holy Spirit's not resident in their life right? You don't have to, I mean, I, man, that's weird for a spirit-filled person. That's just odd. <laughs> you won't have to wonder about that, you know? Sometimes it's obvious. When Charles Manson was, you know, around, no one, if he told you, I worship the devil. You didn't have to wonder. But it's not always as obvious everywhere else, is it? But over time, the works of the flesh are manifested. Over time, the works of the spirit are manifested. And this is how we would know others and even ourselves by the fruit of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a 
new creation. All old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Then when the Holy Spirit comes in, there is a home renovation taking place. I am not the same man that I was living in South Florida before I came to Christ. I'm not perfect, neither are any of you. We still have issues, but we have been changed radically by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that does that work. The Spirit begins closing doors on our flesh. It says, that door is closed now, that door is closed now, that door is closed now. You don't listen to that anymore. You reject that kind of language. You start to walk in the ways of the Lord. And no one really has to even convince you. Uh, we show the video of, uh, remember, some of you remember the testimony I showed of the uh, man in Turkey, a devout Muslim who came to faith where the Lord came to him in a dream. He had never seen a Bible, and he immediately began to put into practice all the things of the New Testament, although he had not talked to anyone about his faith. He, who told him that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit said, matter of fact, he was, he, remember, he used to re, uh, routinely beat his wife, get drunk, all these different things, and the Holy Spirit said, all that goes away. He started being nice to his wife, stopped getting drunk, stopped beating the children, started to be kind to his neighbors, and no one told him to do this. Not a single discipleship class, no fellowship with other believers. It was all what? The Holy Spirit. Any man being Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are becoming new. Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom you also believe, and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Aren't you glad you're sealed? Goes on, Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 2, 22 and 23, God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, we have the seal, we have the seal of assurance by the Holy Spirit. And then John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, there's the Holy Spirit again, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Goose egg. Zero. This is where the Holy Spirit is so imperative. We can't do anything. Same chapter. John chapter 15, same chapter. Jesus goes on to say in the 26th and 27th verse, but when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me and you will also bear witness. See, when the Spirit is in us, the Word of God comes out of us. It will take place. It's axiomatic, Jesus says. When the Helper comes in, my words will come out of you. You'll grow in me. D.L. Moody said, how many know who D.L. Moody is? Great, great man of God, used as an evangelist in the late 1800s. Um, he was the one that said the world has yet to see what God can do with a single man, fully surrendered or fully yielded the Lord. Uh, he became one of those men, no doubt about it. Uh, but he, uh, as a young man, he was a very successful businessman, left, uh, left all that he had uh, in, the, in the business world to be used by the Lord, ended up shaking two continents for Christ. But he said this, he said, you might as well try to hear without ears or breathe without lungs as to try to live a Christian life without the Spirit of God in your heart. And the fact of the matter is, you can't be saved without the Spirit of God in your heart, much less walk for God without the Spirit of God in your heart. It would be the same equivalent as what D.L. had to say there. 
See, there's, and you and me, and you can look back in your own life and you'll be able to see this yourself, there's absolutely nothing, I'll repeat that, there's absolutely nothing in your flesh that actually desires purity, humility, surrender, and holiness. How do we know that? We know it from the Scriptures. The Scripture says the heart is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? Paul said in Romans seven eighteen. for I know that in me. Now, Paul was a godly man. So when Paul says this, you can be assured it applies to all of us. Paul said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing. There is no redeeming value in us. We, just, we did a prayer of, of consecration of these little, little children. They're adorable, but the sin nature's in them. Ask their parents. They'll tell you. Thankfully, their sin is not near as bad as they could get as they become older and become really acquainted with the world, but it's already in us the day we're born, isn't it? David said, in sin I was conceived. So there's nothing good in our flesh that will desire humility or surrender or holiness. That desire to be Christ-like comes only by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 7 is life before the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 is life in the Spirit. And you kind of compare those two chapters and you realize that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. There's nothing in our flesh. Uh, when I first got saved, I could not have made myself all of a sudden not want to do the sins I used to like. The Holy Spirit just gave me immediate distaste for it. And I wanted to run the other direction. That was not my flesh. My flesh would still desire those things, but the Spirit and the flesh, they're at odds. The Spirit says, you can't do that anymore. You won't even enjoy that. You know, Pastor Lloyd Pulley up at Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge in New Jersey, uh, in his book, um, Under the Influence, he wrote this. He said, abiding in Him, because we're told by the Lord that we simply have to abide in Christ. We must abide in Christ. The Holy Spirit will lead us to abide in Christ. It will help us abide in Christ. The Holy Spirit will teach us the importance of it. But he says this. He said, abiding in Him is not a work that we have to do in order to please God. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. Abiding is actually coming coming to an end of our own efforts at living the Christian life. To abide literally means to dwell with permanently, to continue, or to remain under. The Spirit says, look, if you are trying with all your might to do everything perfect, you will be a miserable failure and you'll be miserable. But if you simply abide in the Lord, the Holy Spirit flows out in that work. He is in us. We are in Him. The Spirit drew us to believe in Jesus, didn't He? It was the Spirit that drew us to believe in Jesus. But it's the same Spirit that then compels us to now obey and abide in Him. Same Spirit that drew us for the first says now continue to remain, abide, obey, stay in the Lord. And as we commit to abiding and dwelling with the Lord, as we commit to abiding, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit helps us to keep that commitment, doesn't He? He helps us keep that which we've committed unto Him against that day. And He continually convicts us. He continually comforts us. Isn't that great? He continually encourages us. He redirects us. Right? I'm a parent. I have three daughters. We sometimes have to redirect. We encourage. We comfort. 
We counsel. All the same manifestations that the Spirit does in the indwelling in my life, parents, we then live those things out with children, and later when they have their own relationship with the Lord, they hear those same things, and they, they can start hearing it very young, actually. But again, we are created in the image of God to reflect the same character traits, and we do these same things in the lives of our children. The Holy Spirit does all these things. Now, how does that work practically in our life? Well, it is a life where we begin to pray, we study God's Word, we, read God, we listen to God's Word, to teaching and discipleship and training, which we're doing today, and just hanging out with the family of God. Because there's some people who've been walking with the Holy Spirit a lot longer than you, and you can learn a lot from them. And I can too. I, I, I have mentors and believers that I know have walked with the Spirit, in the Spirit, under the power of the Spirit longer, and all those things, prayer, the Word of God, other believers, all these things are important in helping us to stay and abide and to grow. Now, with the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, we have the very voice of God. Isn't that great? We have the very voice of God speaking to us, drawing us nearer, teaching us to abide in Him, and allowing His amazing grace to transform us. See, grace is what transforms us, right? Grace trains us in the book of Titus, it tells us that. And all this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit, as we grow in the Lord, He produces the fruit of the Spirit in our life, which we read about in Galatians, love, peace, joy, all those things, but also the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which I don't have time to go into that. We did that in our study of Romans, um, just uh, uh, when we were in the 12th chapter, we covered some of that. But these are the things that the outflow, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. But there is even more that the Holy Spirit wants to do. Did you know that? There's even more that the Holy Spirit wants to do, and it involves His using us to minister and take the gospel to a lost and dying world, and that is going to require supernatural power. It all requires supernatural power, but it's a different type of challenge. It's one thing, think about it, it is one thing to have the Holy Spirit in your life and to sit in your living room with a cup of coffee, enjoying the pages of Scripture, right? Just enjoying the pages of Scripture, meditating on the Word of the Lord, receiving from God. It's one thing to do that. It's an entirely different thing to now say, God says, all right, go out into the battlefield of this world and take it to someone who can't stand me. You, you gulp on that coffee, right? I'm enjoying this time, Lord, Right? Christians with coffee. <laughs> a beautiful place. Now, I like that. I grow in those places. But the, whole, but the Lord said, you're going to need my spirit to come upon you for the outside world, for the outside work. You're going to need me to battle arm you front, side, back, rear, come upon you to go forth. And let's look at this ministry of upon, this, this experience of the Holy Spirit being upon us. R.A. Torrey, he also was in the uh, 1800s, served with D.L. Moody and uh, wrote many books uh, even before he met Moody. Uh, he was a great uh, theologian and the Lord had done many things in his life, but he said this, he said, it is our privilege to so walk daily and hourly in the power of the Spirit that the carnal nature is kept in the place of death, but this is not the baptism of the Spirit. Neither, it is the, neither is it the eradication of the sinful nature. 
Now, we know this is true because we can, we can, everything he said, that walking hourly in the power of the Holy Spirit, the carnal nature being kept in check, that is in and of itself not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we know this is the case. Think about the upper room believers. They had already received the Holy Spirit. Jesus had breathed the Holy Spirit upon them. John chapter 20, day of the resurrection. Jesus told them specifically in Acts chapter 1 verse 4 that they were going to have to wait until power fell on them from on high. Now we know that they were already walking in the Spirit because they were in a nonstop prayer service in an upper room just loving on each other, praying, worshiping the Lord so they were not outliving any kind of sinful life, quite the opposite. They were walking in the Spirit, but they had yet to receive the overflow outpouring of the baptism, and yet they were already being godly saints, and they already had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, no, 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 what I'm going to send upon you is going to be igniting, and it's going to be important and in going into the uttermost around the world and taking the gospel. Where do we see the baptism of the Spirit displayed and described in the Scriptures? Well, I don't have time to go into all that this morning, but here's a couple of passages you can write down. You can read about it in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, right? So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, Acts 19. By the way, I'm going to come back and do a specific, a specific teaching on just the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 2014. Probably a Sunday night. We'll do like a Sunday night service. And because, again, it, it, it's one of those things that if you desire to know and grow even more, we'll cover those things and we'll cover them in detail. But what I want you to get over last week and this week is a holistic view of the work of the Holy Spirit. Not just a, you know, this, this view right here, but the holistic view and understand how the Lord is using the Holy Spirit in the church age, but also prior to that as we looked at last week. Now, we're, uh, we know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is described and displayed in those passages, like I said, Acts 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19. Uh, now, some showed manifestations where the baptism of the Holy Spirit fell on a person. Some of them spoke in tongues. Sometimes that didn't happen. I don't speak in tongues. Just so you know. If you're shocked, oh, I can't believe that. I thought, that, I thought for sure. No, I do not. Some of you do. That, has nothing, that is one of the things that can come with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's not exclusive. Paul talked about that. Uh, some will receive tongues, some other, uh, some other uh, gifts for benefit of the whole body. But again, it is one of the gifts of the Spirit, and the Spirit may or may not give. And you may have some gifts may come later in your life. They don't necessarily come all at once. Because that's not the greatest emphasis, and we'll look at that. Andrew Murray, who was someone that uh, also was used in that same time period, matter of fact, R.A. Torrey read a number of Andrew Murray's writings. Uh, Andrew Murray, speaking of the outpouring work of the Holy Spirit, he said, the believer must abandon all power and hope of his own to receive this full blessing as a free gift of divine omnipotence. The acknowledgement of our utter impotence the descent into true self-despair is indispensable if we would enjoy this supreme blessing. In other words, he's saying those that really understand that, Lord, I can't do anything if reach this world without you. I need the baptism. I need the overflow of the Holy Spirit. I cannot be worth any value to that lost and dying world unless I have your power upon me. That is a good thing. It's good that when we come to a place, we can't, if we think we're a really good speaker or we're really good this or we're really good talent at this, that's not helpful. 
It's when we realize we have nothing to offer that the Holy Spirit says now. That's what Jesus told the early church. They could have thought, well, we, we've spent three years with Jesus. If anyone can really reach the world, we spent three years in training with him. Jesus said, you're going to need more than the three years of training with me. You're going to need my Holy Spirit to fall upon you. Now, God didn't have to do it that way. That's just the way he chose. And I just accept that based on the scriptures. Pastor Chuck Smith, I mentioned Chuck earlier, who went to be with the Lord back in October. He was speaking to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in his book, um, Living Water. He said this, he says, just receive the gift. Chuck's so gracious. He says, just receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and experience his dynamic power in your life and be a true witness of Jesus Christ in this world. How desperately we need this power. We need it for survival. We are living in perilous days. Chuck says, there's no way I can be of value without the baptism of the Holy Spirit in reaching this world. That's, that's what Pastor Chuck was saying. He said, we need it. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to fall upon us. We're living in those days, and the perilous days have been for a long time now. This isn't new, but they are getting more perilous. You know, we sing that song, Lord, I want more of you. Living water, rain down on me. Lord, I need more of you. You know we sing that song, right? We sing it here sometimes. You've probably sung it at other churches. But I would say that most have as much of the presence of God as they actually want. Would you agree with that? Most people have as much of the presence and power of God as they actually want. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. His mother, Mary, who the Holy Spirit put, uh, placed Jesus inside her womb, his mother Mary would say, He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. You know, she was, she was saying there, she was actually linking to something that Jesus would later write to the lukewarm church. He said, you think you're rich and you have all these things. He said, you're poor, you're naked, you're blind, because you don't hunger and thirst for the overflow of my spirit in your life. That's what, that's what Mary's pointing toward. Now, whether she knew that at the time, I don't know. But it comes very clear when Jesus writes his letter to the churches that Jesus says something very, very similar. You think you have all this, and I'll send you away empty-handed, but those that hunger and thirst, I will pour, I will baptize, I will give great riches from heaven in the spiritual realm, not the physical. Again, not bigger on your bank account, but more of the power of God flowing in your life, which we saw in the apostles, we saw in Paul. There's nothing in the scriptures that indicate that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to lukewarm believers. I'm going to be very clear on that. There is nothing in the scriptures, you won't find anything in the scriptures you can challenge me or any other pastor. You, can go, you cannot find anything in the Scriptures that will lead you to believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to a lukewarm believer. It's not. If the lukewarm believer was honest, they would admit that they would not want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If they're really honest, and some will be. <laughs> some people would be this honest. But if you really were honest, as a lukewarm believer, you would not want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with actually going out into the world as the hands and feet of Jesus. And a lot of people, uh, if that's what's going to happen, I'm not sure I want that. Because i got a pretty good schedule going on here. i got a life that I've carved out, if, if it's perfect for me, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit could rock my world and cause me to do things. Now the cool thing is when the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you won't care about those things anymore. But we don't want to not care. We want to care about the things that we 
currently care about, and we know that the Holy Spirit would drive those out. When D.L. Moody received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, do you realize he was already being used mightily by the Lord? And two women came up and said, we've been praying for you. And he said, why? He said, they said, we've been praying that God would give you the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was mad at them. He said, he was indignant. He goes, how dare these ladies who see the power of God manifested in my life say that I still am missing something from the Holy Spirit, but the God of the universe kept knocking on his heart and said, they're right. And he went back to them. He said, can we pray together? And he prayed that the Holy Spirit would fall upon him. It happened several, I don't know if it was several weeks or months later, he was walking in New York City. The Spirit fell upon him so mightily that he said he thought he was going to die for joy. He went to a brownstone, uh, uh, like a house or apartment, got in, fell on his knees, and his ministry was never the same. It was after that. He had already reached thousands, then God had him reach millions. He had already reached thousands. How many thousands have you and I reached? Not, not thousands, right? And D.L. Moody found that the baptism of the Holy Spirit expanded him. He already loved the Lord. But God says, there's more I'm going to do. I'm going to fall on you in a great and mighty way. And you know what he said? This is the thing that was amazing. He said, after that day, he never cared again about anything but the souls of men. After that day. You couldn't get him all wound up over the baseball scores. You couldn't get him all wound up over, you know, there's a new show coming out and everyone's going to watch it. you got to make sure your DVR is set and you better be home for the opening. He couldn't care less after that point. He, he didn't decide not to care. The Holy Spirit just drove it out. Isn't that great? Isn't there things you wish you could stop caring about? The Holy Spirit will drive them out. You know, it's synonymous with being in the hands and feet of Jesus, but it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that's so needed uh, for this type of ministry. Why? Because it, when we're fitted for service for the Lord, it's going to be reaching out to a world that doesn't know the Lord, ministering to people. Not, not again, not just soaking up, but letting the rivers go out of our life into a lost and dying world. I didn't say this was for the life of a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary, but simply all of us in service to Christ. Amen? This isn't for one person. This is for everybody. Uh, R.A. Torrey, in his book, um, The Baptism with the Holy Spirit, he talks about housewives in his day that lives were transformed, that the ministry of their children became so much more powerful than it was after they had received the baptism with the Spirit. Uh, it was not something... By the way, the other amazing thing, did you know what, uh, when R.A. Torrey, uh, he, this book I would recommend everybody to read, The Baptism with the Holy Spirit. It costs about $9.99 on Amazon. I honestly, if you could not afford $9.99, I would help you get one uh, to read this. Uh, he, was, he actually did not believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was for the believers in his day, he thought it was just for the time of Pentecost and things like that. Uh, D.L. Moody told him otherwise. D.L. Moody said, <laughs> uh, D.L. Moody wasn't the theologian. He was just a mighty evangelist. He said, I'm living proof that it exists today, and I'll tell you why. And he told his story. R.A. Torrey was the student. He poured over every reading, every text, and he came up with one of the most definitive works on it. And he came back and said, D.L., you're right. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, all these others, he said, this is for today, and the church is lacking power because of its lack of it. And he was used in a mighty way. Do you know he preached on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and Baptist churches and Methodist churches and Presbyterian churches 
all types of denominations, many pastors from many denominations came to see we have neglected this great teaching of the apostles to our own detriment. And at that time, it was not limited to a few charismatic. It was actually all the denominations were in unison realizing we together have erred and putting this aside. And it became a great time of refreshing in the church at large. Uh, and D.L. used to send, uh, send Ari Torrey to speak, speak uh, specifically in many churches on this. But um, like, uh, like D.L. Moody and like Ari Torrey and many others um, that were greatly used by the Lord, when they came to see and understand their own personal need for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Lord wants the same for us, just as he did with them, their own personal need for it, to understand it, to believe it, and to receive it. And I think that when we see what the express purpose, this is why some people are really afraid of the concept or misunderstood. Jesus, and Ari Torrey does a great job in his book in explaining this, Jesus makes it clear what the purpose is. It's back in Acts 1.8 when we read what did we read in Acts 1.8? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you'll receive power to be my witnesses. Witnesses. Uh, you already have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for the work of sanctification, for the work of salvation, for conquering sin in your life. That work is given to you as salvation. This is the explosion work to go out and reach out when you're scared and your knees are knocking together. What did the apostles do after they had just been, uh, they had just been admonished, uh, Peter and John? They were told, do not share the gospel anymore. And they said, whether we should obey God or man, we do not know. Uh, you, you judge. And then when they went back, they prayed again, and the Spirit fell upon them again. This is after Pentecost. And the whole place shook, and they preached the word, it says, with boldness. That's the overflow work of the Holy Spirit. This is the purpose. R.A. Torrey says, look carefully. Listen to this. He says, look carefully at every passage in which the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned, and you will see it is connected with and is for the purpose of testimony and service every single time. Never is it to get up on stage and start impressing your church by speaking in tongues. Look at how holy I am. Never is it for dancing and barking like a dog. Never is it for acting like the fool. Right? And puffing oneself up. It is always, every time, he said, every time it's mentioned in scriptures, it is for testimony and witness. That penetrates people's hearts. It's never for us. It is to be used by the Lord to reach out and to reach others. Um, and by the way, I believe many people, and Many of the saints that uh, wrote on this and really came to understand it well, I believe that many saints have been baptized by the Holy Spirit and don't even know it. Even that don't even know what it is or even don't even agree with it have been baptized because they, they're so humble and surrendered, they don't maybe understand the theological construct, but that doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit's already baptized them and they've already received it. But many others have not because they've not, uh, they've not really come to that place to surrender. Uh, R.A. Torrey talked about these seven areas would make one fitted to receive the baptism of the Spirit. Again, lukewarm doesn't apply, but listen to these seven things that he has, he has scriptures for all of them, uh, of being fitted for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He does this predominantly out of Acts chapter 2, but a few places in Luke as well. 
But he says, first and foremost, you must repent and turn to Christ for salvation. We would all agree with that, right? That, that's, that's automatic. You can't receive the baptism without salvation. Repent and turn to Christ. Number two, he says, you must renounce sin in your life. Crucify the flesh. I am dead to sin. I crucify the flesh. I no longer will pursue sin. I will only pursue Christ. Number three, he says you've got to be water baptized. Now, this is not a requirement. He goes into this. He says the Holy Spirit has baptized people sometimes with water baptism, before baptism, and after. But the general rule, remember this, the general rule in the Scriptures is that, Jesus, remember Peter said, repent and be ye baptized for the remission of sin. It doesn't require it for salvation, but it is that first step of humility and obedience. And what else is it? It's a public confession that I'm following Christ. Jesus said, you must, uh, you must proclaim me and also uh, name my name before men. So water baptism, not, again, not a requirement, but this would be the natural order of being fit. Number four, walk in obedience to Christ. Now that you've been baptized, you've renounced sin, you've, you begin to just walk. This is abiding in Christ, we've talked about already. Number five, desire the baptism. Lord, I want more of your power. Hunger and thirst for it. Desire the baptism. Number six, ask for it. <laughs> ye have not because ye ask not. And number seven, believe by faith you've received it. I did all that back in uh, it was about 2000, and, maybe 2000, 2001 in Charlotte, North Carolina. I had pastor lay hands on me. By the way, you don't have to have anyone lay hands on you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit can do that in a number of different ways. That is the most normal mode of operation in the book of Acts, but it's not required. You could be in your own bedroom on the floor, on your own knees, and the Holy Spirit can baptize you. D.L. Moody was walking down a street in New York City, and it came weeks after these two old ladies had been praying that he would have uh, by the way, D.L. Moody said there was two things that transformed his ministry even after he had already brought so many men to Christ in the Civil War, ministered to dying soldiers, all these things. He said, number one, it was the prayers of a bedridden woman in England that he knows the Holy Spirit drew him to England, and two was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now the last thing, I've only got a couple of minutes here, but I think this is important stuff, and that's ignited. What is ignited? The other three things we talked about is what the Holy Spirit does in us individually, but what about when he pours out on us as a people? Pentecost. Revivals. We pray for revival all the time. How many believe that God can actually do that? The Spirit alone brings revival. I cannot think of a known revival that did not begin with a group, usually a small group or even a single individual, of hungry and Spirit-filled people praying for revival, begging for it. This began with Pentecost. Remember in the upper room, they were waiting. They were longing for the Lord to do what he said he would do. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom that day, ignited. People were speaking in one language and hearing it in their own language. I mean, this is a powerful explosion of the Holy Spirit. The same prayers of a few anointed by the Spirit, would continue to spawn other revivals throughout the last 2,000 years. By the way, a well-chronicled uh, uh, listing is found on revival-library.org. Here's a few of them. I want to read off a few of them because I don't believe most people have any clue what the Holy Spirit has done in the past. That's why they don't really believe He can do it again. Those who are, you know, don't know the past are destined to repeat it. That's good. That's true for bad stuff. 
and the holy great goodness that the Lord has done as well. Listen to this one. In the 14th century, the Lord raised up John Wycliffe. He was a theologian, an Oxford professor who had become a lay preacher, and ultimately he translated the Latin Vulgate Bible into the common English vernacular of the people. He was a man of deep prayer. Many were converted through his scripture and preaching, through his uh, preaching and writing, not his scripture, uh, through his preaching and writings. And he said this, he said, Christ and his apostles converted the world by making the scriptures known. And I pray with all my heart that through the things contained in this book, we may all come together to everlasting life. The revival of his day, by the way, is a precursor of the Reformation. But he was a man of deep prayer. And the prayer preceded him being given by God the ability to actually translate the Bible into the common language with much opposition. By the way, the authorities hated him. And the fact that he would even put the uh, language in the language of the people. How about Martin Luther? Martin Luther was used by the Holy Spirit to bring the Reformation and grace to millions that in his day were dead in works. They were following works that could not save them. Martin Luther prayed for hours every day. Once a spy followed him to a hotel. The next day he told his superior that Luther had prayed nearly all night and that he could never conquer one who prayed like that. Listen to him in the agony of his prayer on the morning of the day that he went to make his defense before the Diet of Worms. Convinced he would die as a martyr that day, which God spared him and he didn't, he said, O almighty and everlasting God, how terrible is this world, how weak is the flesh, and how powerful is Satan. O God, O God, O God, do thou help me against all the wisdom of the world, for this is not my work but thine. The cause is thine, and it is a righteous and eternal cause. O Lord, help me. Faithful and unchangeable God, thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it well. Act then, O God. Stand by my side for the sake of thy well-beloved Jesus Christ. Amen. God spared him, and the rest is history. You and I, even people that don't know Jesus, couldn't care less. Atheist agnostics have benefited from Martin Luther, and they don't even know it. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, was a mighty man of prayer. Here is an example of how he prayed. O Lord, give me Scotland, or I die. After a time of stillness, again the cry, O Lord, give me Scotland, or I die. Once more in deep silence, then again the cry with more intense pathos, O Lord, give me Scotland, or I die. God gave him Scotland. Scotland had a massive revival under John Knox. How about the Ulster Revival of 1625? This remarkable revival was promoted by a band of faithful ministers. How about that? A group of pastors actually getting together Instead of being celebrities, they went forth in companies to evangelize the land, and God used them mightily. There was much prayer and faithful preaching in this revival. A contemporary description of one of these ministers can be taken as typical of them all. He spent many days and nights in prayer, alone with others, and was vouchsafed great intimacy with God. A short description of those happy days says this, Preaching and praying were so pleasant and the hearers so eager and greedy that no day was long enough, nor any room large enough to answer their strong desire and large expectations. They weren't looking at the watch. The Holy Spirit so filled them they could not get enough of God. Jonathan Edwards reveals the secret of the revival that took place in his day. He said, The spirit of those who have been in distress for the souls of others, so far as I can discern, seems not to be different from those of the apostles who travailed for souls. 
on the evening of the day preceding the outbreak of revival, and you know the great message he preached, sinners in the hand of, the angry God, of an angry God, some Christians met and spent the entire night in prayer. How often does that happen? The Methodist revival was born in the power of the Holy Spirit. Some of you, there was a Methodist revival? Yes, there was a great Methodist revival. John Wesley records, January 1st, 1739. Mr. Hall, Kinchin, Ingham, Whitfield, Hutchins, and my brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. About three in the morning, as we were continuing an instant prayer, the power of God came upon us in so much that many cried out for exceeding joy. Many fell to the ground. As soon as we recovered a little bit from that awe and amazement at the presence of His Majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be Lord. This was the beginning of Wesley's amazing ministry, which resulted in the revival of religion all over the British Isles. In this ministry, he traveled 250,000 miles, preached 40,000 sermons, often to 20,000 persons at a time. Of this period, when the revival began, a Reverend Reverend Ryle said, these times were the darkest age that England has passed through in the last 300 years. Anything more deplorable then the condition of the country as to religion, morality, and high principle is very difficult to conceive. Remember, it was dark, it was evil, and God used these small group of men in an all-night prayer meeting to break forth revival. The story of Jam- Jeremiah Lamphere, I showed the video uh, the night we showed the Billy Graham. Jeremiah Lamphere uh, in New York City, 1857, uh, just a nondescript businessman that decided he would be a missionary to businessmen. So he hands out 20,000 flyers for a noon prayer meeting, September the 23rd, 1857. He waits in the upstairs of this little Dutch Reformed church for who will show up. 20,000 flyers he's hand out. 12 noon, he waits, nobody shows up. 10 minutes after, still no one. 12.15, he's up pacing, worried that God has failed him. 12.30, still no one. And all of a sudden he starts to hear... Couple steps come upstairs, ends up being five men. They pray, the following week they do it again, 13. The following week, 24. Then the stock market collapses. Thousands come to Christ all over the country. Prayer meetings explode everywhere. All because one man passed out 20,000 flyers that no one listened, no one would come. And then all of a sudden, God started, the Holy Spirit said, These five are going to join you. Now these are going to join you. But it started, and what would take place as 1857, 1858, uh, the revival swept across the land with such power that for a time it was estimated that not less than 50,000 conversions occurred in a single week. The revival was carried on to a large extent through the lay influence, just the people in the church, not even the ministry pastors, so much so as to throw ministers into the shade. They didn't need anyone prompting them and prodding them that was the equipment of the saints was taking place. There was such a general confidence and the prevalence of prayer that people very extensively seemed to prefer prayer meetings than even preaching. The answer to prayer were so constant, so striking to arrest the attention of the people generally throughout the land. It was evident that in answer to prayer, the windows of heaven were open and the Spirit of God was poured out like a flood on the United States. But it didn't just stay there. It went around the world. And uh, it ended up going all the way to Europe and down by the time it got to 1860, Andrew Murray, who I read of, 
he was a missionary and pastor in South Africa. And the revival came all the way down to him and where he was at. He said, my prayer is for revival, but I am held back by the increasing sense of my own unfitness for the work. He says, I lament the awful pride and self-complacently that have now uh, that have till now ruled in my heart. Oh, that I might be more and more a minister of the Spirit. But in 1860, the revival which began in America did come to the churches of Cape Town, South Africa, and subsequently spread to the surrounding towns and village. Even remote farms and plantations felt the impact as lives were changed, where once the churches had not been able to find one single man ready to be a leader of God. Not one single man. Andrew Murray couldn't find one man to join him. The revival raised up 50 in his hometown of Cape Town alone. There were more conversions that month in the parish than the entire course of his ministry history. This is what the Spirit ignites. But notice what the beginning of it was. It was prayer, wasn't it? It was the upper room prayer. It was Jeremiah Lamphere saying, I'm going to set aside every single Wednesday. By the way, it ended up being every day eventually. They expanded it every day. It was the hungering and thirsting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that not only impacted them individually, like an Andrew Murray, like a D.L. Moody, like a uh, Jeremiah Lamphere, but also they would see the revival in, out throughout their land. By the way, these are your ancestors and mine. I'll never forget, I, one of my doctors told me, one of his ancestors, and uh, his, one of his ancestors was a great man of God, and my doctor uh, doesn't, even, doesn't even believe in Jesus. You know, many of our great, 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 great grandparents and ancestors who were transformed in these revivals of the Holy Spirit would plead from heaven with their, with their sons and daughters and, and great, great grandchildren, what are you thinking? Did Jesus not give you enough proof that he is the Son of God? Did the Holy Spirit not do enough? But we've forgotten these things. These are our ancestors, our relatives, our great cloud of spiritual witnesses, as Hebrews tells us. And all of it can be summed up. The ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit, what God desires to do is us getting in position to receive and be transformed. Amen? And it's in Isaiah 57, 15, it says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That is the position God wants all of us in. That contrite spirit, that willingness to lay aside, to yield, to surrender, to commit, to pray, and to patiently, by faith, wait and to walk and receive the Spirit's power in our lives. Amen? Zechariah 4, 6, not by power, nor by, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Let's close in prayer.